Good evening and welcome. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Naman. I'm on staff here as a pastor and, and as a campus minister at, at Carnegie Mellon. I was just uh, newly ordained about a week, well, exactly a week ago. So they, they, they wasted no time in, in putting me to work and, and preaching and uh, serving communion this morning. So I feel privileged uh, and really thankful for a city reformed uh, in, in welcoming our family and, and, and having us do ministry here. We're, we're so excited. Um, if you haven't been with us the, the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been going through the book of First Peter. And we've been looking through this letter that the Apostle Peter has written to the church and just kind of the immense truths that Peter writes. Um, and we, we land here tonight on First Peter 2, chapter 4 through 12. I'm going to read that for us. If you would read along with me and, and, and at the conclusion of that, respond uh, with the part of the people. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I had to do a little bit of research on when exactly reality TV became popular in America. Uh, growing up as a teenager, I, I, I certainly remember TV shows like uh, Survivor and, and American Idol and Real World and Road Rules on MTV, and, and those, those played pretty, sadly to say, pretty big impacts on my own social, relational uh, capabilities, if you will. Uh, I guess back in the, in the late 40s, there was a show called Candid Camera. Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, which I didn't, I had to Wikipedia it, uh, you may be dating yourself a little bit, but reality TV was, was beginning to be introduced into the country, and there was this fascination with the, the real world, the real life circumstances of, of average people uh, in the country, not just the celebrities who are reading off of a script, but people living real lives and being captured on camera. And I always thought that that was the most interesting and almost terrifying way to, to live your life to some extent, to, to have a camera pointed at you 24-7 and for people to, from, who, who may not know you at all, who, who most likely don't know you at all, to be able to, to pick every decision, every word that comes out of your mouth 
Uh, and it was very telling, not only of, of what was going on, but who you were as a person, your character, your, your personality, uh, your credibility, so to speak. <clears throat> when I read uh, this passage in First Peter, and as we'll, we'll look into it a little deeper, what I notice here is that Peter, what Peter is trying to get at is, are we living lives around a watching world in the public? Are we living lives as though Jesus Christ mattered? Are we living life as though the gospel really happened? And are we living life as, as though we truly believe it? And that's the question that I want to ask us tonight. It's a very simple question. If we were to reflect upon our own lives, if people were to investigate, see the things that were going on, the thoughts of our minds, the words that are coming out of our, our mouths and, and our actions, do we live as though Christ matters? <clears throat> and I want to look uh, at sort of at that idea through three points. The first point being, what is Peter's imperative? What is his command regarding that idea? Secondly is, what does it mean to be God's chosen race? And lastly, what does it mean to be God's spiritual house? Peter's imperative to be his chosen race, and to be a spiritual house. So we'll start with Peter's imperative. And it actually starts with the end of the passage that I just read. If you'll read again with me, verses 11 through 12. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, uh, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. <clears throat> so we've been looking at First Peter now for the past couple of weeks. And, and what I want to argue here is that the summation of actually this entire letter can be found in these two verses. We've, we've talk, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Joseph talked about the call to holiness and how we as Christians are called to be holy. And two weeks ago, when we last uh, preached uh, through First Peter, Pastor John preached on the importance of the word and how we are to <clears throat> receive it, how we are to almost consume it as, as children do uh, as milk when they're younger. And so as, as Peter is talking and as he will continue to talk to his church uh, in these next coming chapters, I will argue that these two verses right here are the summation of his message. And what is that message? It, it is to say, glorify God by abstaining from the passions of the flesh and conduct yourselves honorably. Or more distilled is to say, may your conduct glorify God to others. May your conduct glorify God to others. This is almost Peter's answer key in the back of the book when he's talking, when, when we're looking at this epistle. Glorify God, may our conduct glorify God to others. So all of Peter's exhortations preceding this and that will subsequently follow somehow land on these two verses, this Peter's imperative. Because we'll see that, because um, he'll talk about how we should conduct ourselves to the outside world, whether it be how do we relate to governing authorities, how we relate to uh, situations of employment, and, and even in our marriage, how we are to respond to suffering, glorifying, may our conduct glorify God to others. So we'll, we'll briefly look at what he's, what he's saying here in this command. First, he says, hold off from worldly passions, hold off from sin. And this is very similar to what Joseph preached on uh, when, when, when Peter is calling us to a life of holiness, calling us to a life that is set apart, that is different from the outside world. This is not a new idea that Peter is coming up with here. But what I wanted to highlight today uh, is that this there are very real 
uh, end time implications, the very real deep implications uh, to what he's saying, because Peter says that uh, the passions of the flesh will actually wage war against your soul. If you continue to live in a lifestyle of, of sin, where, where your life and your choices are dictated by your own passions, it, it does way more than just affect uh, how your life turns out or who you are as a person in this world, but it actually wages war on your very soul, on the, on the very identity of who you are. It has, a, it has an effect on your eternal standing with God himself. So when we abstain from passions of this world, it's not so that we can just be a better person in the here and now, but it actually has implications to our very soul when God comes to visit again. The second part of his command is to say, be honorable around Gentiles. And and oftentimes when Peter uses the word Gentiles, he's talking about unbelievers, people who don't know the gospel or who, who choose not to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what he's calling us to hear, what he's calling the church to is that he's calling us to witness, to evangelize. There is a distinction to be with Peter uh, between believers and unbelievers. As believers, we are ambassadors of Christ who represent his, his gospel message, but also the life and the truth that he came to embody by dying to himself. If we were to think of all the, the presuppositions, all the maybe ideas that and an average unbeliever would have about Christians, whether they were overly conservative or, or, or too hung up on, on traditions that didn't matter to modern contexts, a lot of these ideas, a lot of these presuppositions are had because of what pr- prior Christians in history have acted, the ways that they have acted. And so what Peter is trying to say here in verse 12 when he says, Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see the good deeds and glorify God. So that when unbelievers, when Gentiles see you, see the way that you live your life, that there is actually no reason to have these types of presuppositions, no reasons to have these these types of judgments towards who we are as Christians representing Jesus Christ. And so Peter expounds on, on, on more of these verses, as we'll see in, in the coming weeks, as we continue to look at, for, at, at the entire book. But before we move on, what I want to say is one of the most important things that I've noticed about this imperative is, yes, about what he's trying to say to, to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to glorify God amongst unbelievers. But I think one of the most important things is actually a single word that he mentions and the way that he addresses the church is to say, beloved. When we think of Peter addressing the church as his beloved, we see these commands through a lens, a perspective that is not just uh, uh, an arbitrary, cold command for us to do, but coming from somebody with credibility, coming, coming from somebody who actually loves the people that he's speaking to. When I was younger, I, I mean, I would always remember um, my parents badgering me, you know, eat your vegetables. That's, that's a very common thing to, to, to be pestered about, to be nagged about. And it's a very different message if, let's say, your, your gym teacher says, eat your vegetables. It's totally thrown out of context, but through the love, through the care, through the insight, through the, even the depths of going to disciplining you to, to look after your welfare, to look after your own health, to call somebody your beloved, 
Peter is addressing the church, giving this command, this imperative, with this lens of, I love you. I want what's best for you. You are God's beloved. You are my beloved people. And this is what I wish for you. So when we read this this command, when we read this main idea of what I'm calling to be the, the main idea of the first Peter is, how do we view this command to remain pure, to remain holy, to abstain from the passions of the flesh? And how do we think about conducting our lives so that it, it is honorable towards those around us through the eyes and commands of a God who deeply and truly loves us? And so, I mean, I probably could stop the sermon right there, but Peter gives so much more on, on the foundation of all this command and, and what he's basing it out of, because it's, it's more than just the fact that he loves him. It's, it's, it's the very least that, but he gives so much more richness uh, to, to who these people are. And so I want to I investigate a little bit more about that as we move on to our second point, is who we are as God's chosen race. We'll start reading again in verses 6, uh, starting in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. And we'll stop there. As we mentioned, Peter gives this imperative to his beloved Christian brothers and sisters, realizing that there is a very real dichotomy between believers and unbelievers in the world, as we had mentioned. So Christians are to conduct themselves that differs, that differentiates themselves uh, with the non-Christians, honorably abstaining from passions of the flesh. And so the fundamental difference for Peter in these two camps is that what he quotes here from Isaiah is that honor and a promise never be put to shame is for those who believe Jesus Christ. Honor and a promise never be put to shame. And for those who do not believe and reject God, the unbelievers, Jesus and the word of God is actually a stumbling block for them and offensive. And if, if we kind of nitpick a little bit more the words that he used, those who stumble and disobey the word is because they were destined to. And we pause there to, to, to ask the question, what does it mean that they were destined to reject God? What does it mean that they were destined to stumble? Uh, this is uh, a very unpopular conservative and reformed doctrine that we like to call the doctrine of election. Uh, that before the beginning of time, God chose an elect, uh, God chose and elected to deliver some from sin and misery onto salvation through life, through everlasting life, uh, through the work of Jesus Christ. And so, ha- however, wherever you fall on that doctrine, whether you believe it or not. That also means that either, however you want to believe it, actively or passively, that means God also chose not to save some. So the question, the qualm, the stumbling block, if you will, for a lot of people nowadays that they always land on, is the reality that if he elected some to salvation, that means he elected others to eternal damnation. And so as maybe a Christian, or even especially as a non-Christian, how can we believe that a perfect good, and holy God would let anyone go to hell? Why can't everyone be saved? 
As, as, as I was reading through these verses, I was wrestling it through it myself. I was sort of just squirming in my office, thinking about how do I preach this? How is this actually good news? And what I want to say is that if we were to ask the question, how can a good and, and loving God send people to hell? I, I want to say that maybe there's actually a different question that we should be asking. And that question I want to ask is, why did God choose to some, save some at all? That if, if mankind fell to sin, and if all of humanity was fallen away from God's good graces, why on earth did God choose to save anybody at all? And so as, as, as we look at these verses, as we look at these words that Peter is preaching to the church, what I want to help us see is that the doctrine of election is more a doctrine of grace. That God would come to save us at all is an immense display of his loving grace for humanity. I'll point us to some other passages in scripture, and I'll also open a lot of questions and discussion as we go to uh, Grill the Preacher tonight. But here are some verses from, from uh, the rest of scripture. Job 38 says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? This is God talking to Job. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? We'll get into the idea of the cornerstone in a little bit. Continue on in, in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that, me, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And lastly, from the book of Romans. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump on one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? That God would save anyone is a miracle. If we truly believe that salvation is based on God's grace alone, through faith and belief that his son, Jesus Christ, came to die for us, then the doctrine of election must be at the core of that belief, so that no man can boast and say that he merits righteousness, that he merits salvation. Or as to use the words that Peter used in this passage, we are chosen, yes, but we are also precious. We are the chosen and precious people of God, which is exactly why he came to save us. When I was growing up, uh, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, there, there probably was never a time that I, that I don't remember going to church or remember seeing my, my parents read the Bible or, or having us uh, do quiet times together and praying together. And that was a big part of my life growing up all throughout uh, youth group and, and as a kid. And I remember when I got to college, um, I, I remember distinctly thinking to myself, uh, I don't think I believe in predestination. I don't think I believe in this doctrine of election. Um, 
if, if God had if God hadn't born me into a Christian household, would I still be the person that I am? Would I still be a Christian? So I began to question who I was, like what I could have been. Would I still truly be a Christian if, if I didn't have Christian parents or the influence and the upbringing that I did? And so college for me was, was a very quintessential rebellious stage. I was experiment, experimenting with different lifestyles, was, was partying, partying nonstop, stopped going to church altogether on this notion that, well, let's just find myself. If God had nothing to do with it, if, if the church and my family wasn't a part of the equation, who would I really be? And as many of you know where this story may be going, uh, otherwise I'd be extremely unqualified to be standing up here and preaching to you. Uh, God chose to show me that a, a, that a lifestyle of, of partying, that a lifestyle apart from Him, apart from growing up with Christian parents and growing up with these Christian ideals, actually wasn't a part of who I am. That it was very hard to find my own identity separate from who God born me into, the family that I had, the, the lifestyle and the church that I grew up in. So God, in, in, a, in a very real sense, elected me, chose me to be born in the, the confines of the church to know his goodness, to know that I was chosen and precious in his eyes. And that's what led me back to not only my faith, but to seriously consider a calling to ministry. And I guess uh, the rest is history. This is why I'm here, is, is to know the redeeming power and work of a God who sees us, sees you, as beloved and precious. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So then how then does this perspective of being chosen and precious of God alter our view of, of Peter's imperative to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to glorify God in our conduct amongst others? <clears throat> how much more will an outwardly honorable life be motivated by love than just a mere command if we know that we are his precious people. Uh, and, and I want to continue on and close with the last point here is, is what does it mean to, to follow this command and what does it mean to be a spiritual house as Peter quotes here uh, in this passage. So if you read with me starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says it again here, chosen and precious. But this time he's not referring to us, he's referring to Jesus himself. Christ was a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious by God himself. So that the only way that we are able to keep this command that Peter is giving us, the only way that we can see grace in the doctrine of election, is to respond to Christ by approaching him. Verse 4, as you come to him. As you come to him. Often this, this, this specific phrasing and wording was used in the Old Testament to describe priests approaching the temple, approaching God himself. It's a direct posture and for the direct purpose of worship. And the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament was actually known to house the very presence of God. 
There were many Jewish laws and customs that were mandated to priests on, on how they were to dress, how they were to approach God on the Day of Atonement, how they were to conduct themselves to enter the tabernacle, to enter the temple, to be in the presence of God. A good and perfect and holy God could not be in the same presence as sin, so that those who were unworthy were immediately struck down in death. As we look at this idea furthered into the New Testament, Jesus is the new temple. As we see him quote numerous times throughout the gospel that tear down the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He's talking about himself. In Christ, we are able to come to God as priests with access to God. A deep and personal relationship with him. It's because of what Christ has done for us, we have access to God. His chosen, precious, and beloved people can approach God and be in full communion with him, just as the priests were back in the Old Testament. Christ was a chosen and precious one who was rejected by others. He was uh, the, the, build, the stone that the builders had rejected became the cornerstone. Uh, as Matt kind of somewhat promised that I would talk about this idea of a cornerstone, um, biblical times, when you think about a stone itself, Oftentimes, uh, stone is probably the wrong word to, to, to use because when we think of a stone, we probably think of a, something that we can hold in our hands. But oftentimes when stone is used in the Bible, it was meant to speak of a huge, massive boulder that couldn't be moved because obviously without the technology that we have today, boulders couldn't just easily be moved or, uh, or blown up um, for, for the convenience. But Oftentimes, boulders just sat there because that's where they were, and there wasn't much a single man could do about that. And that's, that's kind of what I see here when, when Peter says that this stone was rejected by others because it was an inconvenience to them, that they stumbled upon it, that they tried to do everything that they could to move this stone so that their life can go exactly the way that they wanted it to, that they planned it to. Whenever boulders were able to be moved, it was done by massive armies, by the rule and conduct of the king himself. When we think of Christ as the cornerstone, cornerstones back in the day were actually the the very first stone placed in the foundation of a building, and that from this stone, the angles and uh, the the levelness of it would dictate um, how all the other stones placed on top of it would, would go. So that if the cornerstone were leaning in one direction, the entire building could crumble. And so to speak as, as Christ as the cornerstone, it's almost to speak as Christ as this cosmic Jenga block, if you will. That the one wrong move and, and the whole building, the whole foundation crumbles and falls. With Christ as the cornerstone, we, as Peter describes here, we are living stones built upon him. And notice that he says we are living stones. We're not dead stones. We're not dead stones of a building to just sit there, but we are living stones that that house the very presence of the living God. And as living stones, we are a growing spiritual house. We are a growing building. But the very gospel, the very good news of Jesus Christ continues to be spread, continues to be preached, continues to be lived out, continues to be used as a resource to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to continue to be used as a resource so that we may glorify God as we conduct ourselves to others. We are living stones 
a holy priesthood. This past weekend at the, the men's retreat, I was immensely best blessed by Pastor Will Baker from Mount Olive Baptist Church. And, and one of the things that he said that I remembered is that as Christians, as members of the church, as members, as living stones of, of, of the church, we all are a royal priesthood. We are all priests given access to God. And that was very pertinent for me as, as somebody who just got ordained and seemingly qualified and, and placed on a, in a very public and open position to, to say and, and announce to others, here is the new pastor. Feel free to throw questions at him whenever you have them and, and throw your deepest theological you know, qualms that you may have. Uh, but this very privilege that we have as Christian brothers and sisters, not just me standing up here preaching from the pulpit, not just Matt or Joseph or John or anybody on staff, but as, even as you sit in the pews, as you listen to the word preached, as you live out in conduct this gospel news, we are all made priests given access to God. What a privilege that is. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Uh, I want to close um, by, by looking at one last thing that, that Peter mentions uh, in verse 10. And he says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's quoting the book of Hosea here. As, as we look at the prophet Hosea, um, interacting with God, having this dialogue with him. Uh, Hosea, as, as many of you may know, had an adulterous wife, a prostitute for a wife in Gomer. And that the children that, that Hosea, uh, Gomer bore to Hosea were called not my people, did not receive mercy. So God is redeeming Israel, and God is redeeming the church even today as we hear these words that once you were not a people, but now you are God's People. Once we did not know Christ before, but now we are called God's beloved children. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Through this gracious doctrine, through this gracious act that God would choose to save anybody at all, we come to know Jesus. We approach him as precious and chosen people so that we are built, being built up as we speak, as we listen. This church, this very church, the people in it and the building surrounding it is growing. The ministry of this place has such immense potential for the gospel of Jesus to be preached. And so I, with all of those things in mind, that's how I want us to view these verses that Peter gives. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We read these words and, and listen to them and hear them spoken by a loving God who has redeemed us and who has given us Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.